You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Stacy Mosley. Like a lot of people, Stacy knows that Philadelphia is changing and changing quickly. But unlike most people, Stacy can predict it. That's because she's the co-founder and CEO of Stepwise, a software system that tells investors where and why to buy their next property in the city. In this episode, you'll hear how early in her career she worked for a promising local startup, but was suddenly laid off and without a job. So she started wandering around the city, looking for her next career step. I was really just kind of exploring and trying to stay out of my parents' house. (laughs) She started noticing all the abandoned homes and that there are somewhere around 25,000 vacant properties in Philadelphia. Why isn't anybody taking these properties down? If they're on the verge of collapsing, why isn't anybody doing something about that? So Stacy set out to reduce the number of blighted buildings and launched a tech startup to analyze the city's immense amount of property data. Now she knows before everyone else which neighborhood is next to see immense development and everything that comes with it. We hear and read about emerging neighborhoods all the time, but it's another thing to know exactly which properties are starting to be renovated when. That, to me, is one of the most exciting things. So real estate investment and development can be a polarizing topic. On one hand, development often introduces heavy disruption and displacement to neighborhoods that residents have called home for generations. But on the other, investment can spark quality of life improvement through infrastructure and amenities that may have not been available to neighborhoods for generations. And let's not forget that real estate investment isn't just limited to big developers. It's also a tool used by individuals and families alike to grow their net worth, build equity, and achieve financial freedom. So there's many different angles to this world. and. As you'll hear, there's tons of information out there. To Stacey Mosley, the name of the game in impacting urban real estate in a positive way is data. She learned this while working in the Nutter administration's open data team. And while her company Stepwise, which used to be called FixList, no longer focuses its mission solely on combating urban blight, it still aims to improve the lives of Philadelphians by helping any potential real estate investor understand everything they can about a given property and whether it'll be a good investment. Now, it took Stacy a little bit of exploring to find her exact path in life, but her inclination towards helping people and engineering and business all come from her time as a child, as she grew up adoring her grandfather. So my grandpa Herbie looked out for everyone and seemed to always have the answers. I have very much spent a great part of my life trying and aspiring to be like him one day, being somebody who is connected, is grounded, and can really help support what's going on around them. Ever since I was probably in elementary school, I would try to just follow him and mimic what he was doing at the time. So in those days, if you were asked what you wanted to be when you grew up, 
what would you have said? A business person. Oh yeah, you yeah. wanted that, that early, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I ended up going to college, I spent all of that time figuring out how to build things. I went to school for engineering, but in my heart, it was always with the intention of creating solutions that could be sold and could be utilized by other people. Yeah. So what was college like for you? College was not what I was expecting it to be. What were you expecting? (laughs) I was expecting college probably to be a little bit more socially and creatively engaging than it ended up being for me. I went to Northwestern University. I went for engineering based upon advice that a chemistry teacher in high school had shared with me. He had said at one point that... If you want to be able to do anything, go to school for engineering and you'll be able to figure it out. Northwestern itself is positioned on Lake Michigan. And so the south side of the campus is all your theater and opera and your arts and is also where they had all of the sororities. You then have the north side of the campus, which is all technology and math and science. And they had that mile distance literally in legal writing because... The university is in Evanston, Illinois, where prohibition has its roots. And so they were trying very much to keep like the sexes very far from each other. So I spent the majority of my time in the technology side of the campus, surrounded by a lot of men. And it wasn't horrible. I mean, there's a lot of creative things that you can do with engineering. And that's why I really enjoyed the product development side of it. But you don't see all the flyers for dance club and you don't see the flyers for theater club. So a lot of the cultural activities and arts that I really enjoyed growing up, which included dance and piano and singing and acting, I didn't really get to experience as much when I went to college. So when you graduated, what was the plan at that point? This was what, around 2009, 2010? Yeah, so I graduated in 2009. When the recession started hitting in like 2008, I was already kind of getting frustrated and feeling like I was on a conveyor belt myself. While I had been educated in this environment that was very focused on Ford and GM and McCormick, literally at the McCormick School of Engineering, I wanted to work somewhere much smaller I had actually interned at a product development consulting agency that was only 40 people during my college years, and I really enjoyed it. You get thrown into situations where a large corporation is saying, we need help because the people inside aren't solving the problems. What can you guys do? And really being able to explore new territory with other open-minded people. So by the time I graduated, I knew I wanted to go small, but I also wanted to do quality work. I didn't want to be building things like packaging at Procter & Gamble that people could throw away. What sort of things were you building that you enjoyed? One of the more clever things was my senior thesis was a toy for dolphins. We were actually (laughs) (laughs) trying to design a bubble maker for dolphins in captivity that would be activated by them using their echolocation. Oh, man. Which they tend to stop using when they're in captivity. So they were like, oh, this could be an interesting project for a bunch of engineers. That was me and four other people. And trying to accomplish various facets of the project. So everything from how to use echolocation and what you needed to have on the programming side to know that you had picked up something of an echolocation frequency, 
and then having that then trigger the release of air from a scuba tank, basically, to create bubbles. I loved that project because it meant having to fit all of the pieces together because you can't just understand one element. They all have to end up working as a, as a system. So the time comes, you've graduated. What did you start doing? So I moved back to Philadelphia and I started working at Ticket Leap. Okay, which, a software company. Yes, which is a software company, um, which had at that point about 20 some people. What made you think that Philadelphia might be where you should be? It felt more tangible. Okay. It felt like I would have an easier time having access to people. Yeah. Here, you actually can get to know people really quickly yeah. and develop really strong bonds and then get broader insight into little nooks and crannies that I feel like would take much longer yeah. in New York City. So she moved to Philly and joined Ticket Leap as a consultant. She was brought on to help redesign their office space. And she did such a great job leading that project that when it was over, they made her the assistant manager of all product development. Life was good for a few months, but soon she started to sense trouble. I had had a dream a couple of days before about things going haywire and being laid off. And I had told the CEO about that. No. <laughs> and, and he was like, no, everything's fine. <laughs> and it was like, it was probably like a week or so beforehand. Yeah. When the day came, they told the people who were being held on to not come in until like two o'clock. So they played the whole, you know, everybody who's getting fired is, doesn't know. And so they're all going to come in and then we're going to all, they're all going to be dropping one by one. And I had a friend from the sales team who was on the administrative floor. She G-chatted me. She was like, Andy just got fired. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So it wasn't astonishing. Like yeah. they were going through a whole bunch of troubles with meeting goals and yeah, investment yeah. and stuff. It must have been difficult. What were like the, the stages of feeling when something like that happens? I wasn't super surprised and I wasn't insulted either. I was trying to pinpoint where I should be going next. If they were struggling as a startup, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to go into another startup at that time, which was really challenging because I then was like, ugh, do I want to go work for Comcast? Like, what other places are there? And it didn't feel like that was very mission-oriented either. Not that Comcast doesn't have wonderful missions and things. Well, it may not have, <laughs> no, 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 but it may not have yeah. reflected whatever missions that you had. Right. And so I started coming to and from the city because I had to move back in with my parents and was looking at City Hall and how monolithic it was and got really curious about what was going on on the inside because as an engineer if there were problems to solve that place was fraught with problems Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did you initially scratch that itch of curiosity i in traveling to and from the suburbs was well, what yeah. were you doing what where were you what were you doing in the city when you were coming back and forth i was really just kind of exploring and trying to stay out of my parents' house. Okay. <laughs> They're just like, I'm going to go into town today. Yeah. 
and go to the museum, go to the parkway, go along the Schuylkill River Trail, really just trying to keep an open mind about what was happening and also keep open eyes about what was happening around me. So I was coming to and fro and was always really impressed with the transition from station to station. And certainly in the suburban areas, you have those much more densely populated stations where you've got multifamily housing compared to areas that have beautiful giant houses with pools in the backyard. And then you would get past the city line. And I really was startled usually with how blighted things were up by Fern Rock Station. And one of the things that really hung on me was why isn't anybody taking these properties down? If they're on the verge of collapsing, why isn't anybody doing something about that? So I was interested in what departments essentially were responsible for things like that. And I walked into the City Hall Visitor Center not knowing, you know, anything about city government. And I walked up to the woman at the front desk and I was like, do you guys have an organization chart of the city? Like what the different departments do? And the woman behind the desk didn't know, but the woman who actually ran the visitor's office was like, oh, you should talk to my husband. And it turned out to be the wife of former deputy mayor of economic development, uh, Alan Greenberger, Greta Greenberger. She ran the visitor center for decades, which was fascinating to begin with. She had been there since like the Rendell era. And she kind of started guiding me in terms of what the lay of the land was. So so you walk in just one day and randomly demand an org chart from over (laughs) the front desk. And they must have been so surprised and oddly curious about who the heck had just (laughs) strolled in. Ask, yeah. I mean, did, they, did they indicate that at all? Like, how, um, what, how did they react to you? <laughs> I mean, Greta's always, always a talker. She loves sharing things about the city and sharing all of the history and whatnot. So she always was enjoying when I was asking questions. Yeah. I started volunteering there and started helping her organize her office and like all these things. But she was educating me about the roles of different agencies and who was responsible for them and even the history of past administrations. I was probably a little bit of an odd bird, but she very much welcomed me. Well, and you were just sort of chasing your curiosity at that point. So at what point did it turn into an actual position more than just volunteering? Greta was introducing me to like head of capital projects and people at the zoning commission and people who were related to property. But it wasn't until there was an urban revitalization conference that Daryl Clark was putting on that she was like, oh, I got an invitation to this. You're probably really interested in it, but I can't go. Here, like, take my ticket. That was then where I started getting exposed to the people who were influencing the legislative side and actual developers like Bart Blatstein and John Westrom, who I had heard about but had never seen their faces. So that was the the turning point because one of the main characters was the commissioner of the Department of Licenses and Inspections, which I had no idea existed really up until that point. I didn't know until I researched you that that was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is such an interesting agency. It is a fascinating agency. They are responsible for all of the buildings that get built. 
They have to look at all of the engineering plans to make sure they're going to be structurally sound. They have to send out inspectors to make sure that the work is being done correctly. And then they also are responsible for the polar opposite of what's happening, which is all of the deterioration. So all of the service requests that neighbors call in saying, oh, there's a raccoon in my neighbor's attic, or there's vermin in my rental apartment, or the heat's not working, those are handled by the property maintenance division. And it's a much sadder side, but it's fascinating, the duality of the organization. So is there a moment so far where urban blight and the state of different properties in Philadelphia went from a curiosity to like a mission for you? I mean, I think it was when Fran Burns hired me because she was being asked by Mayor Nutter to change how they were addressing blight. And all they had was a giant spreadsheet of vacant addresses and a goal to change things and they needed to hire staff. And so I had gone and was just curious about the department and went in for an informational interview and she offered me a job after that. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I want to own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that, and that, at that point it was your mission. Yeah. Wow. Can you tell me what an average day was like while you were laid off? There were many days that I would get into Suburban Station and emerge and really be faced with what was happening in Dilworth Park. And I feel like it was very strange to be in that position where I didn't have a job and I was surrounded by people who were homeless and many who probably have health conditions and things like that. That was a really scary and introspective time. Not that I thought that I was going to be homeless, but it was just a, it was a big old question mark. And you don't know what those people's lives are like either, but you, at that moment can find some similarity or sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. And so in those moments of doubt, what did you do to make yourself feel optimistic? It was the goal of then tackling those problems. I mean, homelessness definitely not being the one that I have chosen, but realizing what my focus has been drawn towards has always had this kind of economic factor to it. And it has been fascinating to watch that space change and also see where people have been displaced to because you know it hasn't, the homelessness hasn't gone away necessarily. But yes, it is one of those parts of Philadelphia that I appreciate is being surrounded by such economic diversity, even just downtown. So as you started working in the office of L&I or I know? L&I. L&I. L&I, yeah. <laughs> in those first you know, months, weeks, even years, was there anything about working for city government that surprised you? Oh, yeah. You could not talk about anything. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, Can you talk about it now? <laughs> <laughs> if you were not in an authoritative role, you were not supposed to talk about much of what you were doing, not for like academic purposes or like panels. Like I at one point was invited to be on a panel and I got really excited about it because I was like, oh my gosh, I've been working on like vacancy data for two years and people think I have things to say. (laughs) And then I got totally shut down. (laughs) You're not allowed to talk. No. (laughs) I mean, again, 
people have their agenda. Yeah, sure. And you never really know whose agenda is driving what. Yeah. I guess it just wasn't it wasn't my place. Yeah. Quote. What things did you want to say on that panel? I think some of it had a lot to do with the patterns that we were seeing in the information. We found people who own hundreds of properties in poor areas of the city, and that's just what they do. And they're able to leverage those assets even more to then get more vacant properties or more blighted properties, which is also just a fascinating thing about money and is so frustrating in some ways. So being able to start seeing the segments of ownership from people who had passed away to certainly properties that were owned by the city. So you then, I believe I read that you joined the open data team yes. within Marinette's organization, right? Yeah. So how was that different for you? It was extremely different. I was the only technologist working on the vacant strategy at LNI. That was what really drove my decision to go over there. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were, other tragic things that drove that decision, but Come so, on. <laughs> Come <on>. yes. <laughs> you can't. Okay. Coming up, you'll hear how tragedy would strike Philadelphia and would impact the Department of Licenses and Inspections forever, to the point where Stacy would transfer to a different section of city government. It was there that she would pick up the skills and inspiration to launch Stepwise. Stay tuned. This episode of Philly Who is supported by Pita Chip, the fast, casual Middle Eastern restaurant inspired by Syrian street food. It's just like other fast, cash spots where you can build your own salad, rice bowl, or wrap. But this one has tasty shawarma, veggies, falafel, hummus, and flavorful sauces and spices. They've got great gluten-free and plant-based options too. Pita Chip is family owned by two Syrian immigrants who have been in Philly for 25 years. And this year, they were featured in Philly Mag's list of best shawarma in Philly. Their two locations are on North Broad near Temple, Goals, and on Market Street between Penn and Drexel, right next door to the Philly Who Studio. Order pickup or delivery today via pitachipphilly.com or via the Pita Chip mobile app. And if you use promo code PhillyWho, you'll get 15% off your first order. That offer is not valid for catering, which, by the way, they also crush. So hit them up if your office is tired of the usual pizza and bagels. Big thanks to Omar, Muhannad, and the Pita Chip family for supporting Philly Who. Welcome back to Philly Who with Stacy Mosley. On June 5th, 2013, at 22nd and Market Streets in Philadelphia, a four-story building was to be demolished. The contractors and construction workers weren't following proper safety protocol, and at 10.43 a.m. that morning, the building collapsed and crushed the Salvation Army thrift store right next door. Fourteen shoppers and employees were seriously hurt, and six more lost their lives. After the accident, a long investigation and trial ensued, and the excavator operator was sentenced to 7 to 15 years in prison the construction contractor got 15 to 30 years in prison. The tragedy rocked Philly to its core, and to this day, at the site of the accident, there's a memorial to the victims. The Department of Licenses and Inspections, where Stacy Mosley worked, was hit especially hard by the accident. 
In fact, the inspector responsible for inspecting the botched construction site would eventually commit suicide. On the morning of the accident, Stacy was at the DNI office proposing that she should receive a promotion. So I was in one of the deputy commissioner's offices talking about the proposal with a colleague of mine because we were both on board to be promoted, basically. We were pitching our new roles. We were in the deputy commissioner's office, and I remember someone running in, and it was right around like 10 o'clock in the morning, and being like, you have to turn on the news, like a building at 22nd and Market just collapsed. And it was like, what? (laughs) Everything, of course, stopped and then proceeded to get a lot worse. Yeah. What were your first thoughts when you find something like that? It's a weird department to be in for that reason because they face these things more than a lot of other agencies other than like the police department or the fire department. You're just kind of bracing yourself and watching the executive team start dispatching people. You start trying to piece together what did we know before and now now what do we know? How did this whole ordeal change the way you looked at your mission? Well, the mission part is a little bit secondary because I think it, again, was one of those situations where I think about the role of leadership and being able to guide hundreds of people through a situation with the greatest respect and safety and security as you can. When it comes to the safety of buildings, that's a whole other ballgame. Construction is a part of the industry that I'm not as hands-on with, and I, I don't think I intend to be. You know, while you're, you're doing so much work on the open data team to, to gather all this information, to understand it, to start to understand the system, at what point did you start having thoughts about doing these, this type of thing on your own? I had been trying to combine data sets in-house for the city with the goal of multiple departments being able to have one singular vacancy model to play off of. And after months of working on it and getting support from some people, but then also starting to run into some blockers, I was like, there's no way, (laughs) not no way, but there's very little chance that this is going to be used the way that I want it to be in the end. And when you're not in a position of authority in government, you don't have a say over that. I knew that there was a lot more power in that information that could be leveraged on the outside without as many rules. And I started putting together a business plan and being like, okay, who would use this? Who might pay for it? What would come of having a tool where you could not just see like the vacant properties, but you could see where it makes sense to invest right now where you're not necessarily taking advantage of people who are living in their own homes, but you're actually looking at these dilapidated buildings. They might be rental apartments. They might be just completely vacant properties. But where does it financially make sense? And that's a really powerful thing to do with data because we hear and read about emerging neighborhoods all the time, but it's another thing to know exactly which properties are starting to be renovated when. And knowing well before an article comes out which neighborhood is starting to be developed. That, to me, is one of the most exciting things because it's the movement of money. 
What were the first days like Ooh. when you struck out on your own <sighs> to pursue this idea? <laughs> the first days I put together my legal papers to form an LLC and then realized I had done it completely wrong. <laughs> I felt liberated. I felt absolutely liberated. I just started working. I had made sure that, you know, other than the business plan, I was not building anything because I did not want there to be any conflict of interest when I left. And so I was very intentional about like, okay, this is what I'm intending to do. And I'm not going to start until like the day after. So I started building away and building with tools that were within my reach at the time. Um, being able to use things like QGIS, so a free version of ArcGIS to be able to manipulate all of this data. And, and start. these are, what are those things? ArcGIS is a spatial analysis tool. So you can upload what are known as shape files and you'll have like point level data or geometries okay. of all different properties. If I wanted to take like all of the property stock in the city, but then just filter down to what was zoned RSA 5, which is like a light residential zoning. Sure. And so you start plugging away. Yeah, I started plugging away. I had been in the hunt for a co-founder. I had started asking a very good friend of mine and he wasn't ready. And he kept saying no, but like, I'll teach you things. I created my mock-ups and every Monday night he would meet with me and teach me how to code. And gradually, over the course of, I guess it was almost seven, eight months, I was able to actually put a front end together of what I was envisioning. Wow. And so the moment that it was, quote unquote, done. So Yes, as, as, right. You know, V1. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's ready for eyes. How did you feel? I felt really excited. And then I put it out there into the world and I had people signing up sight unseen for $100 a month. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which, I mean, was kind of, I mean, it was a great, like, first moment. And sales and marketing is by no means that easy. But it was <laughs> definitely a validating moment to be like, oh, my God, like, people are actually in need of and seeking out things like this. Yeah. Who yeah. were the people that were, yep, take 100 bucks? Please. Yeah. They were real estate brokers and people who are at some of the largest like REITs where $100 is peanuts and something that they can expense really readily. And so did you feel any pressure at that point? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because then you start meeting face to face with the users and being able to understand what's working and what's not working. And But it also started putting me in the position of understanding the larger process and how these people work. As you grew this product, this company, what did being CEO teach you about yourself? I need to have more patience. I have this impatience to want to get past the checklist before sharing it with more people, and that's just not, it's just not real. You, you mentioned how... The company rebranded recently. Mm -hmm. The company was originally <laughs> called Fix List. It was the list of properties to be fixed. <laughs> right. And so, and so people could go on there and they could essentially see a map of Urban Blight. First off, at any point, did you start to see the impact of this list existing? Yes and no. The yes is that 
This tool really makes it possible for people to pinpoint which properties are going to be acquirable. So when we first released the tool and I was focusing primarily on the developer community, the people who would be buying the properties, fixing them up and either renting them out or, or selling them off. And what we discovered was that instead of the developers, we actually started getting a whole bunch of people who are called wholesalers using our service. What is a wholesaler? So a wholesaler, what they are, are those, we will buy your house for cash people. Yeah. And they are often targeting people who are in financial distress with blighted properties and blanket entire areas with mailers saying, we want to buy your house. They usually buy these houses at about 60 or 70% market rate because the individual selling needs to get out of a financial situation and needs the cash. And they play a very distinct role in the industry because the developers who are going to do the work aren't going to do that. And the real estate agents aren't as interested in those properties because they don't make as much profit on them. Those wholesalers will, instead of getting a commission, they'll say, okay, we will offer to buy your house for X number of dollars, so like $60,000. And they'll go to all of these developers that need projects to work on, and they'll say, we've got this property that will sell to you for 80, and they make that 20,000 in between. So that's who we ended up finding on our site. <laughs> we ended up piloting wholesaling for a little bit. Wow, Yeah. and you guys were wholesaling yourselves. We have been piloting it since January. And we haven't closed a deal yet, but we've been trying to explore what it means to connect with people who it's not their residence. And it's clearly an investment property that given changes in the market, they could make a profit on if they sold. And what's been interesting about that is then also figuring out, okay, how financially intelligent are people? How many properties do they own? How long do they hold them? And things of that nature. And for me, that begs a, a longer term question of what it means to be a citizen investor in a way. Meaning an investor who... So like wherever you may live in your neighborhood, if you own your own home, but then you've also accumulated some wealth investing in another property. Uh, and I mean, there's plenty of young professionals that start getting into that once yeah. they're in like their 30s and 40s. It ranges in difficulty how big of a project people want to get into. Right. But I think that there is really something meaningful, both in putting capital into your neighborhood or a neighborhood nearby, neighborhood, yeah. a neighborhood, in order to see it grow and flourish and doing it in a responsible way, right? which the responsible part is where things really start falling off the map because what does it mean to be a responsible landlord? Yeah. So the product began to expand to different cities. Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and Boston is about to be done. So what has been different about those cities? Baltimore is very cool. Baltimore is also economically very different. So they have a decreasing population still. Wow. You don't have as many people buying homes. Right. Washington has way sturdier housing stock. There's very little vacant land. There's very little vacant property. And you're really just 
you're recycling. And I feel like that's what healthy cities get to. So let's talk about the rebrand. Yes. The name change was very much because of how versatile the tool had become. We had started with this intention of helping people find properties to invest in that were already blighted. But that also then became, well, we have every property in the city and we can run the same analytics across them. So why not just make that available? And one of the intentions with the name change was to make it more generic. So no longer just focusing on the development community and investment community, but also on the lending community and then the home buying community. And so being able to help people step wisely into their next investment. I've read that every Stepwise employee is a former city staffer. Is that right? Yes. Is that Um, intentional? No. Okay. (laughs) Total coincidence. Yeah. We all have like a very civically minded approach to what we're doing. And we all try to be very observant about what people are doing with the data um, and what is happening in the economy and what impact the work that we're doing will have. And I think it's... It's something that probably makes us a little bit slower than other companies. (laughs) (laughs) With the amount of perspective that you have about Philadelphia's properties and and things like that, what do you look for in a property? So I'm looking for vacant lots and new construction. So when I bought my own apartment, I bought in Callow Hill. And that was after years of working with the LNI data and being like, oh, okay, Barb Blatstein bought the old Inquirer building and the Divine Lorraine was going to be under construction and like Union Transfer had become really popular and the Gold Text building was finishing up. So I was like, I want to be close to downtown and I need a building that has good bones and a good view and is going to raise in value. But nowadays when I'm thinking about, okay, if I had, I mean, because this is what we help people do. If I had the extra capital, where would I be putting it? And what's been awesome is we're getting such a financial education as we grow that even working with developers to understand their expectations on the percent of profit just for a flip. Those predictions that you make, those estimations, are they correct? (laughs) Yeah. On a percent level basis, our current valuation estimates are about 7% or which translates to about $13,000 off from the actual sale price. That's been after a lot of grueling work. <laughs> yeah. So what what neighborhood has not had the article written about it yet? Yeah. But will soon. My latest new construction analysis was looking at McGuire, which is a neighborhood that's wedged between West Kensington and Port Richmond. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So on the other side of the railroad tracks and to the west of Frankfurt, I believe. Really? Yeah. It's one of those neighborhoods that, given its adjacency to activity, is really going to start seeing the spillover after West Kensington gets a little too full. It's it's almost like you you have this view into the future that that nobody else has. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, and and because, I mean, even, I mean, okay, I own a, a house in just above York Street. I actually met a fellow resident just yesterday who's calling it Noyo, north of York, which oh I love. Because <laughs> it's better than Port Fishington. Let's yeah. have our own idea. Yeah. 
But I love talking with friends. Just we don't know anything about any of this, but we're just like, I'm telling you, man, this neighborhood is going to be the next one. <laughs> right? Like we don't know anything, but you actually know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you can see it moving. Right, and it's all data. Like it's, yeah. here it is. There it is. Yeah. Looking back now, how do you feel when you think back to the last four years of this venture? Slow and steady. Um, I've had to learn so much at each step of the way, understand the weird, I don't know, the weirdness of trying to start a company at this age. You mean at the age that you are? No, I guess like in this generation, yeah. like at this moment. Yeah, what's weird? I think there's been so much in the internet age that's focused around gaining users, which is hugely important, but there's also, because everybody's been giving things away for free, this expectation of not having to pay for those services. And it's infuriating because it's a transition that I feel like young business owners are going through where we have these older generations of companies that are serving very strong roles in the economy. You have banks and you have all sorts of very older, much older institutions to try and pull people into a new way of doing things, in my mind, almost requires those older organizations to be the ones to then put the money into the new ones. You've mentioned a couple times the challenges of being a woman in STEM, being a woman CEO. What advice would you have for a woman who is in or is getting into either one of those? Don't be afraid. I think one of the things that I had mentioned earlier about losing track of some of my more artistic activities is something that I aspire to get back into constantly. So I would caution other women to not lose sight of those things. It's also a matter of paying attention to your emotional compass and finding men who are very welcoming and don't express a gender bias towards you. And that's something that ranges from colleagues to investors and being able to have an intelligent internal response to know when you've got a red flag and to move on. For more on Stacy, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Stacy. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y. If you'd like to support Philly Who, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at podphillywho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced and hosted by me with editing by Max Graham, Angela Gervasi, and Lauren Hunter. Associate production by Angela Gervasi and Jackson Neal. Music by Lee Rosevere and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>